Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latinx culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latinx minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. We are American citizens. We have a right to choose our representatives. It's not a privilege. It's not an obstacle course. It's a right. Hello, welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is an exciting day because this is the first week we are officially going to twice a week, uh, which thanks to all of you for your support. That's why we're doing this. Um, and I am thrilled about it. You get to do a lot more weird stuff if you got eight tries a month instead of four. So I'm really looking forward to this new, more frequent world. Related to that, if you love The Ezra Klein Show and you also love audio engineering, we are looking for an audio engineer to work on this show, to work on The Weeds. You can find that listing at Vox Media. Uh, They have a careers tab if you go there. Again, that is voxmedia.com, and there is a careers tab. We are looking for an excellent audio engineer. Our guest today is Carol Anderson. Uh, She's been on the show before. She's one of my favorite guests. She is the chair of African-American studies at Emory University, and she's written an incredibly important new book called One Person, No Vote. You might remember when I had Dahlia Lithwick on the show, this is a book that was coming out that she recommended. It's all about modern voter suppression and its links to voter suppression going back through the entire history of the American Republic. It's a fascinating book, and I'm always, always glad to have her here on the podcast. So without further ado, here is Carol Anderson. Carol Anderson, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me again, Ezra. This wasn't an uplifting read. I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> what, the, the kind of systematic, systemic destruction of American citizens' rights to vote didn't leave you feeling mm, that warm, fuzzy, patriotic glow? No, I, th- I think maybe I read it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, you actually, you read it right. And that's why I was writing with a, a kind of, I cannot believe these folks are doing this mess. So I, I want to start with uh, the big question that this book raises, which is we learn as kids in school that America is a democracy. Is America a democracy? Not right now. And when you think of Have the- we ever been? We came close, I believe, after the Voting Rights Act. 
you know, and the states kept pushing, 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 trying to figure out how they were going to disfranchise uh, their citizens. But we had a strong Department of Justice for most of the time that that stopped the states from denying American citizens their right to vote. And then the U.S. Supreme Court had another idea. So in 2013, with the Shelby County v. Holder decision, they gutted the Voting Rights Act and sent us right back into the 1950s. I think somebody listening to this might say, wait, back to the 1950s? Oh, yeah. That's a, that's, a, that's a strong claim. Let me explain what I mean by that. So in 1957, uh, the U.S. passed the Civil Rights Act, and it was the first Civil Rights Act since Reconstruction. And what it was supposed to do was to deal with the massive disfranchisement that was happening in the South against African-Americans. But the way that it worked is that uh, somebody's voting rights would have to be denied. And then, even though they're living in a hostile area, they would have to then sue somebody from the government uh, who had denied them their rights. And then there would have to be an investigation. And then there would have to be a trial. And then there would have to be an appeal. And so by that time, several years have gone by. Meanwhile, the people who had been elected under a very discriminatory, disfranchising scheme are in power, and they're making the rules and the laws and the policies to continue to disfranchise. And generally what happened after you got through all of those court cases and say that the state was found guilty, the state would just tweak its laws just a bit continue to disfranchise, and then you start back all back over again. Now think about where we are right now after Shelby County v. Holder. How many times has the federal court told North Carolina that its policies for gerrymandering, its policies for voter ID, its policies for voter roll purges, and its policies for closing polls and eliminating or, or reducing early voting are discriminatory? And yet, here's North Carolina again, continuing to do discriminatory actions. The same with Wisconsin, the same with Texas. So even after a court victory, you have to go back to court because these states refuse to do what they're supposed to do. So, so let me try to speak for the Supreme Court here, as I so often try to do. <laughs> so their their argument, the argument of Chief Justice John Roberts and, and of, I think it was a 5-4 majority yes. um, in, in Shelby County versus Holder, is that the Voting Rights Act, which said that there are jurisdictions of this country that should be looked at with extreme skepticism in terms of voting rights changes. And so anything they might want to do that could affect access to the ballot box needed to be pre-cleared by the federal government. So they actually like needed to go in advance and get like checked off that this was not an effort to discriminate against who could and could not vote. The Supreme Court said that, that was archaic, <laughs> that uh, at least part of that was that might have been useful in 1970 or 1965, but it's 20, I mean, what was it, 2015, 2014 when they did that, but it's 2018 now. Mm -hmm. And that to imagine we need that level of government scrutiny over our own states, our own, our own counties in this country is ridiculous, that the normal remedies, the, the ones you're talking about, where if something goes wrong, then you launch a lawsuit, that's enough. So that was the argument. It wasn't that getting rid of it would take us back to 1957. It was that we had progressed so far as a country that 
these extraordinary measures were no longer necessary. So why is that wrong? Because I think a lot of people feel that we have progressed quite a bit as a country in terms of how we think about these things since the 1950s. Okay, so why it's wrong happens on multiple fronts. So that when Chief Justice John Roberts said, look, we're not as racist as we were in the 1950s during the Jim Crow era and during the 1960s where the Voting Rights Act was required. But then that has to ignore that the Department of Justice had to stop, and you see this in the 2006 reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act, had to stop over 700 discriminatory changes that the states wanted to make. And those changes were stopped because they were seen to be racially discriminatory. And so this is in 2006. And so to try to make the kind of racism that he's talking about uh, something of a long, long, long ago past um, doesn't square with the reality that they had in the documentation. Two, is that the moment that the preclearance statute was gutted, Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act, is that you had states implementing. So you had Alabama, for instance, where their state legislators, several of them had been on tape saying, how do we depress the black voter turnout? And, you know, because all of these illiterates and these aborigines will get on these HUD finance buses and go to the polls. And then they started crafting their um, voter ID law. Now, that was in 2011, and they knew that it was so discriminatory, the way that they had written it, that they could not get it through a preclearance. And so it was only after the gutting of the Voting Rights Act with Shelby County v. Holder that then Alabama implemented that law. And I mean, and we see this over and over, the same with Texas, with SB 14. You know, they implemented it like, boom, shortly thereafter, uh, Shelby County v. Holder. And multiple times, the courts have ruled that this has a discriminatory impact. And in one of those rulings, they said it also has a discriminatory intent. And so one of the background things here that I think people in this space know, but, but I'm not sure everybody does, is... We have voting rights in this country, and we have voting laws. And America doesn't have voting laws. Mississippi has voting laws. California has voting laws. Oregon has voting laws. Texas has voting laws. And it even goes more narrow than that. Individual counties often do this quite differently. And one of the things that just seems tricky here and a little bit unusual about this country is that we have left something as important and as central, at least to our mythic national identity, as whether one person actually has one vote and whether they can exercise that vote to extraordinary patchwork of local governance systems. Many in places that we know have very troubled histories on, on race, but also on, on other dimensions. Mm -hmm. And the way our courts are set up, the way our country is set up, we are supposed to give quite a bit of deference to local control because, of course, the, the government that, that is nearest to the people is the one that will govern them most effectively. So you put those things together and we talk in these very clean ways about, you know, one person, one vote. And it's not a system in any way designed to do that. Is the problem here that we just don't have a clear enough national guarantee of what you get in terms of your uh, political rights if you're an American? I, I think it's, um, I want to say it's more complicated or more simple than that. Uh, the problem is, is that everybody knows what's supposed to happen. 
But the power of racism in the United States is undeniable. And when we try to deny it, um, and that is what has happened, is that we have it cloaked in other language that then allows the subterfuge of voter suppression, disfranchisement to happen, to have folks saying, well, you know, that's not really racist, um, when in fact it is. Um, and until we get on board that American citizens are American citizens, Alpha and Omega, then we will continue to have this kind of chicanery happening over and over. And we do have the Constitution that basically says federal law trumps state law. Um, and so when you have federal law with the Baker decision that gave us one person, one vote, and you have these states, these locales, then trying to figure out, and where we really see that piece happening is with extreme partisan gerrymandering. That's where you see the almost the evisceration of one person, one vote. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I want to talk about a story that you just gestured at, but that your book, I think, traces pretty centrally, which is the way in which racist outcomes have been pursued through policy mechanisms that can always be justified as non-racist, can always be justified as just trying to crack down on fraud or make sure the franchise is only exercised by people who have the knowledge to do it properly. And I think something interesting about this is that we have um, very different ways of looking at this over time. I think now we look back and things like the poll taxes and, and vote and literacy tests are understood as part of a, a racist voting scheme or maybe more of the way to put it is a racist anti-voting scheme. And so we don't really have that debate anymore. But some of the things going on currently like voter ID laws and um, removing lots of voting machines in places that have heavy African-American or Latino populations so they're very long lines – there are arguments about what that really is, right? Maybe we're just trying to save money or maybe um, we're just trying to, to keep fraud. And it creates something quite difficult, I think, because, you know, if you're trying to be generous to it, how do you know when an argument you're hearing is the real argument? And how do you know when an argument you're hearing is just cover for a policy mechanism meant to disenfranchise a certain segment of the population? You know, and, and, and you can hear it by asking that next question. So, for instance, in Georgia, uh, we had a recent incident where a 
policy consultant, had gone to several, at least 10 of the counties that have sizable African-American populations and had recommended that they reduce many of their polling stations for the general election. Um, And Randolph County was the one that really garnered a lot of national attention because there you have a black population um, that's about 60 percent of the or a little over 60 percent of the county's population. And the consultant had recommended that seven of the nine polling stations be closed. And he said that it was because they were not ADA compliant. And so that almost sounds logical because this is how this 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 Americans with Disabilities Act. Right. And this is how this works. Right. I mean, it sounds logical, except why wasn't it logical to close it during the primaries? Why wasn't it logical to close those polls during the GOP runoff? Why does it become logical to close those polls now, now that the Republican is running against a strong, strong contender in Stacey Abrams, who is an African-American woman? So part of what we're looking at is when you ask that next question about the timing of this or when you ask, you know, something like I'll take Alabama again that uh, says you had to have a government issued photo ID and then turns around and says, but your public housing ID doesn't count. So how is a public housing ID not a government-issued photo ID? And then how does Alabama follow up by closing the Department of Motor Vehicles in the Black Belt counties? I mean, so you hear the things about being fiscally responsible. You hear the things about protecting the integrity of the ballot box and protecting our electoral uh, consistency. You hear those things. But what we're seeing is that the way that these laws are written are designed to target African-Americans and sometimes Latinos and sometimes Asian-Americans to, in fact, make it much more difficult for them to be able to exercise their right to vote. One of the things that I've wondered about is whether or not there is a difference in this era from some of the past eras you describe in your book, where a lot of the past periods you're describing, it's very explicitly a racist intention in these laws. You quote Southern politician after Southern politician turning around and saying, this is really about making sure there's no Negro influence in our politics. But when you get some of these off-the-record comments or somebody gets caught on a hot mic, what it sounds like a lot of these laws are now is not so much specifically um, a racial intention in voting, but a partisan intention from voting. Now, it is a case that non-white voters are disproportionately democratic, but it definitely seems or, or it's often said explicitly that what they're trying to do is in Republican states, make sure that fewer Democrats vote. Is that meaningfully different, right? Should that be understood as something different than this past that you're laying out? You know, so, for instance, Wisconsin argued that it's extreme partisan gerrymandered districts, that it wasn't about race at all, that this was really about party and that the Supreme Court had no authority to look at partisan gerrymandering, whereas it had undeniable authority to look at racial gerrymandering. We cannot separate race from party when almost 90% of Republicans are white and 50-some percent of Democrats are white. 
then race matters. Race is co-tangled. It's, it's linked in with party. And it becomes yet another subterfuge to, to hide behind um, very racialized and racist policies. I wonder what this all says about what America's commitment to its political ideals really is. I, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of even how to phrase this, mm-hmm. because when you begin talking about it, I think clearly, you end up saying things about the country people don't like to hear. That is correct. <laughs> but the thing that we are or are becoming or are comfortable becoming, I mean, just on a, on a basic level, you know, it, it's entirely possible in 2019, the situation we're going to be in is we're going to have a political system where the president was elected by a minority, where the House is controlled by a party that got, let's say, five percentage points less in the popular vote where the Senate is controlled by the party that got fewer popular votes, where the Supreme Court has a Republican majority only because of presidents who were elected with a minority of the popular vote. Mm -hmm. We have all kinds of laws gerrymandering and restricting voting. And that that will be the political system making laws that is shaping the voting structures going forward. And we're going to have all of that and at the same time keep saying that we're a democracy and we are representative and that people don't like how it is or just whining because that's you know what the Constitution says. There is some difference between the way we discuss what we believe we are, the America we teach our children about, and the America that we accept and even accommodate ourselves to because it would be a lot of trouble to say that maybe this is actually not how things are supposed to work. But but there's something there in that hypocrisy or in that indifference that I think is quite scary for both the present and the future of our system. Uh, absolutely. I mean, and think about it this way. Because of the power of the poll tax and the power of the literacy test linked with Election Day terrorism, but those two, poll tax and the literacy test, by the time we were in the 1940s in the U.S. was fighting Nazis, you know, so they're fighting for democracy. They're fighting for freedom from fear, freedom from want, the, the glorious Atlantic Charter. Only 3% of African Americans in the South were registered to vote. And yet the U.S. was straddling the world going, we are a democracy. So this is part of our narrative. And what you see happening, what we saw happening then and what we see happening now, are that people who have been marginalized in this definition of American, in this definition of citizen, in this definition of democracy, are demanding access to this nation in terms of its full citizenship rights. And that has been one of the ongoing narratives of America from the founding of this nation all the way through. So in ways, this is not unique. It is part of of who we are. And that part is getting power structure and getting many Americans to recognize that American does not just mean white, and it does not just mean white property, and it does not just mean white propertyed male. It is that kind of foundational uh, challenge that has been going on consistently. And it does get cloaked. I mean, so I think about Lee Atwater when he's describing the Southern strategy And Lee Atwater was a strategist for uh, Ronald Reagan. 
And he said, you know, in 1954, you could use the N-word. But by 1968, which means, you know, when the civil rights movement has really done a lot of that heavy lifting in the United States, he's like, you can't use the N-word anymore. It hurts you. It backfires. So you start saying things, uh, economic things like cutting taxes or states' rights or forced busing. But whatever your policies are, the whole point is that blacks get hurt worse than whites. And so that's the kind of policies that we have seen coming through post-civil rights. And yet the struggle for full citizenship continues even under that kind of subterfuge. So this is the Atwater quote. Let, let's hold here for a minute because uh, there's so, much, so many places I want to actually take this conversation. But, but this is one that I always struggle with. Mm-hmm. This Atwater quote is one of the great strange, telling, revealing quotes in American political history. And, and and for those who don't know it, Atwater is this legendary Republican political consultant. He gives an anonymous interview to a journalist that has this quote in it that uh, you're talking about where he says that, yeah, and, and originally you just use racial slurs and eventually you're all the way down to talking about busing and tax cuts, but you're saying the same thing. And the quote is unmasked after his death. So we didn't originally know it was him, but but we eventually know it's him. And the hard thing for me about this quote, when I try to think about how to apply it, is that it says something that is clearly true and something that is also too much. That there has to be some room to actually argue about taxes. There has to be some room to actually argue just about normal economic things. And yet also when we're talking about social policies or TANF or Obamacare, it's just, it's so difficult to disentangle anything from itself, given that you could have extremely racialized motivations and you could also just believe that Obamacare is going to lead to worse healthcare for the country. It creates, I think, this almost like inability to talk about things clearly because if you bring up the racial dimension of it, people feel so attacked that, and and some people feel correctly unfairly attacked, that they don't want to talk to you anymore. And on the other hand, if you leave it out, you're missing a big part of the story. So uh, I'm just curious, like, how you think about that, how you think about a quote like that that is so totalizing in its explanation for American politics. Where does it leave you? I don't seem to have the same kind of conundrum that you have with this, because as I look at it, I see the power of of race and racism influencing so much of America that to ignore it is to tell half the story. Because, for instance, when you look at public transportation, race is all over that issue of public transportation. When you look at housing, race is all over that issue of housing. When you look at health care and you look at the massive disparities, race is all over that. And the studies are very clear. Even Wealthy African-Americans or African-Americans who have insurance are facing massive disparities as well. So we're not looking at class. Race is doing some heavy lifting in America in terms of the kinds of policies. Um, And that policy also includes the right to vote. And so this feeling that we can't talk about it, it's like how race was not fully mentioned in the Constitution but it's all over the Constitution. 
And unless we talk about it, unless we we're honest with it, we keep making the same mistakes over and over. And I think one of the key elements in that quote that many people miss, however, is that he doesn't say, and so the policies are that we ensure that blacks are exclusively hurt. He just says the policies, you know, and the whole point is that blacks get hurt worse than whites. But whites are going to be major collateral damage in these policies. But that damage then helps provide much of the cover to say that this policy isn't racialized. And unless we understand that, we keep fooling ourselves. So I'm going to say as I continue to explore this, this is dangerous territory. <laughs> so um, I'll, I'll ask to be heard generously, not not by you, but by the audience. Danger, Will um, Robinson. Danger, danger. Uh, Got <laughs> I agree with everything you just said. These policies in all of American politics is is inextricable from race. But something that I think you're pointing out in the book and that I'm trying to get at in this Atwater quote, because I think it creates a very difficult political dynamic, including for people, specifically actually for people who want to see a more equal country. I have a family member Mm -hmm. who I've spoken to them about voter ID laws before. Mm -hmm. And that family member, they buy the sort of argument made for voter ID laws in the big picture sense, the one that you talk about in this book, right? That, you know, hey, if you're not willing to go get a voter ID, if you're not willing to go get a driver's license, like put some effort into voting, then we shouldn't worry about you voting, right? Voting is, you know, if you have to work a little bit for it, it's not the end of the world. And this person, I'm quite sure, does not support that policy because of a racial animus. They're a Democrat. They have a view that is more aligned very much with yours or other people on this side than it is with uh, the people pushing these laws. But they hear that argument, the race-neutral argument, and it makes sense to them. And then somebody comes and says, this is racism. And then they feel like they're being called a racist. And that seems to me to be some of the power of that Atwater move and some of the arguments made here. You know, there are people who just support tax cuts or people who really do think that government should do less stuff than it does. I'm not saying that some of the things here are – some of even these people are not subconsciously motivated by views about race. But what makes this approach to politics so difficult to untangle and even talk about is that in many cases it is born out of deep understanding of what its racial impact is. And then it is justified in a race-neutral way. And then it builds a coalition that when that coalition is accused of racism, that creates a lot of backlash and strengthens that coalition as opposed to weakening or splitting it. And that's what I'm getting at when I'm saying I feel like it's very tough to disentangle this. The genius of the move is that it creates something that can appeal to the racist and to somebody who certainly does not view themselves as racist and maybe is not thinking those terms at all. And yet then to try to talk about it clearly, you alienate one to describe the other. And that is why when I set out to do this book, just the way I set out to do White Rage, is that I was documenting everything. So it wasn't saying, oh, you're racist or this is racist. But this is how this policy was set up. This is how they made the choices about what IDs would be eligible to vote and which IDs would not be. Then this is the next move that was made. Then this was the next move that was made. Then this was the next move that was made. 
And so those who aren't racist but who are race neutral are looking at a policy that on its surface looks race neutral, but the way that it has been designed and implemented is anything but. And to me, it is going after the evidence, going after the facts, and being very clear, very methodical, very sure-footed about that, that reasonable people are appalled when they begin to understand how this process works. And that begins to dissolve that coalition. It makes it clear that things that are so-called race neutral aren't at all. But they've been taken for a ride. So here's my really grim scenario (laughs) for the coming years. I I wrote a piece a couple months ago. um, We may have talked for it, actually, Mm. called White Thread in a Browning America. Mm. And it is all about demographic change in this country, um, how much more non-white the country is becoming, and how much political backlash that is creating among white voters. And Donald Trump is part of this story, and, and, and there's quite a bit else. When you look at examples of how polities who have gone through this kind of change before look now, you can find some that say there's turbulence, but you get to the other side of it. California is more or less an example of that. It has its problems, but is you know mostly a state that is governed in a, in a reasonable way. And you can find polities where what happened was that the group losing power used the power it had to restrict access to political power. So it used the power it had to tilt the playing field mm-hmm. by you know going right through some of the playbook stuff that, that you do, um, taking away voting machines in places where uh, communities that would vote in another way lived mm-hmm. or... You know, North Carolina, I think, has mm-hmm. been showing a masterclass yes. in how to try to execute a power grab um, when you're beginning to, to lose power. One of the things I, I worry about for the country in the next 20, 30, 40 years is that as we go through this political power shift, and particularly as it becomes very geographically disproportionate because, you know, there's a huge amount of population growth in very big states and quite a bit less in, in the rural states. But the rural states retain a huge amount of power mm-hmm. and a huge amount of disproportionate representation. That's correct. So that what you end up having is a country that is becoming less and less democratic, less and less politically equal. And over time, it's not sustainable. I mean, I wonder about a world mm-hmm. in which... Since 2000, 40% of presidential elections have been won by the loser of the popular vote. Mm -hmm. What if it had been five out of five? What if it becomes 10 out of 10? What if it just becomes normal Mm. that the president is the person who comes in second uh, in the popular vote? You know, we're going to have a a situation where 30% of the country has 70 out of 100 senators. I don't know what you do with that exactly. You know, I've been thinking about a lot of stuff. I think one of the things, first, I think one of the things that we need to have, and it's going to take some work, is a paradigm shift. A lot of the fear about losing demographic predominance is about losing something close to absolute power. But when we always think of you know, and this is what I talked about with white rage. When we think of it in terms of a zero-sum game, the only way that 
African-Americans can get will be at whites' expense. The only way that whites can get will be at black people's expense. When it's always this zero-sum game, it creates that kind of contention in the system. It creates that kind of animosity and resentment and that kind of hunkering down. And that is the churn that is like the Banco's ghost that's, you know, that's haunting this thing right now. And so we have to do some heavy lifting, and that's like all of us, about when we begin to think about the massive, it's not like the U.S. is broke. It's that we've got this kind of massive inequities that have not allowed us to thrive. So let's think about what it would take for us to thrive as the whole. And I've also been thinking about that kind of imbalance where Wyoming has more clout than California if you're looking at population and in terms of the way that then that translates into political power um, in the U.S. Senate, for instance. And I think that one of the things that we need to think about is, and I'm going to put this out here, I haven't said this out loud, What this current regime has really indicated are the kinds of major weaknesses in our institutional structures, the guardrails that we thought we had up to strengthen democracy, to keep democracy on the rails, in fact, are failing. I mean, it's just like failure, 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 failure. Coming out of this, we are going to have to think about how do we strengthen this democracy and what that really looks like. We've had to think about it before. Uh, When the Articles of Confederation didn't work, they had to think about, okay, this thing called the United States is getting ready to crash and burn. We're going to have to regroup. And this is where we come up then with the U.S. Constitution. When we came out of the Civil War, we had to figure out how do we rebuild? How do we put this nation back together again? There were some things that were beautiful. There were some things that were God-awful. We're going to have to think through again because we're looking at a Congress that has just abdicated its role in terms of being a check and a balance. We're looking at a judiciary that is being infected with that same kind of of toxin. And we're looking at a White House that's out of control and that the structures that we thought could keep that in place aren't there. And this is despite the fact that the person who's occupying that space right now received almost three million fewer votes. And so I think that one of the things that has to come out of this regime is for us to really begin to think through, again, how do we make this nation stronger? Um, How do we ensure democracy? I find this to be a place where our, I don't even know how to phrase this. I'm somebody who has spent, for a political journalist, an unusually large amount of my uh, career questioning rules and processes. I, I, I like writing about how the Senate works and, and how presidential elections work. And so I run into this all the time. We're a country that over and over and over again, part of our genius has been that we've adapted our rules, our procedures, our structures. I mean, senators were not directly elected. Um, we obviously had an incredibly racist constitution mm-hmm. at, at our mm-hmm. inception. We are a country that um, there was no filibuster when we started, and then there was no way to stop a filibuster. Then we created cloture. And I mean, Mm -hmm. 
you just go through our history and over and over and over and over again, we've made profound changes to the way our political institutions work in order to make them work for that era. And yet you talk about any of that and it is like you have uttered a like a like a blood slur against the founders. There is this strange mixture of America as understood as this forward-looking, dynamic, young, adaptable country and this belief that we should never touch anything because it would be an insult to the people who started the country. I honestly don't understand it on some level. I don't – I've been around it enough to not believe it is purely cynical. I've, I've seen it from many people of good faith. I've seen it from people on both sides of the aisle and yet it's further than mere caution, right? It's not, well, let's think very hard. It's that – it is a belief that America has somehow always been the way we are right now and it has worked well enough up until now, so better not change anything. And that in some ways strikes me as one of our most dangerous beliefs because if we go too far changing nothing, then when the change happens, mm. when the system really stops working, mm -hmm. what's going to come after that is going to be collapse or unrest or something much more dramatic than tweaking along the way you know, from a position of relative strength and, and calm. But there's something in that story we tell ourselves, it seems to me, to make it almost impossible to even have a conversation about the ways in which underlying systems need to change to keep up with just the country we actually are today. When I think that part of it is, I want to say the kind of myth history that we get early on about the founding fathers. And so we get a very thin, narrative, heroic arc and so we don't see them as human beings that have strengths and weaknesses and uh, things they do really well and things you're like, Lord, no, that are absolutely hideous. And so we saw, for instance, uh, with Monticello, the reopening that has Sally Hemings' space in it now recognized and the role she played in Monticello as um, – the slave woman that Thomas Jefferson had six children with. And what does that say when he has her enslaved and he knows that slavery is wrong and he says, God will get us for this, and that he could not find it in himself, this man who believed in democracy and freedom and liberty, to look at the people that even the woman that he had bear his children and see a human being that deserved her freedom. I mean, when we start talking real, then we understand that the Constitution itself has had to evolve from that moment. So a lot of the resistance to changing is to think that, you know, this was a perfect union just coming out like Athena out of Zeus's head, fully born and perfect with all this wisdom. And that's not true. That's not true because all you have to do then is look at the rest of the history. The histories about uh, territorial battles, the histories about the breaking of the treaties with the natives, the histories of slavery, the histories of, of industrialization and what we did to workers where they became expendable. 
And that created then the rise and the call for labor standards. It created the rise and the call for unions. I mean, so this has been an ever-evolving history. And when we're honest with that history, we understand that when we're in this moment right now, because right now our democracy is in crisis, when we have hit those moments, when we're honest, then we will do what needs to be done in order to create a more perfect union. If we sit there and think it's already perfect when the stuff is going off the rails, then it will be cataclysmic. There's a lot of discussion um, in this book, I think in politics more generally, about what I would call a negative agenda on voting rights, stopping bad things from happening. I mean, you have this extraordinary statistic in the book that in 2017, 99 bills to limit access to the ballot were introduced in 31 states. So that's not great. (laughs) No. And so there's a lot of question about how to stop those bills. Mm -hmm. What is a positive agenda on voting rights and democratic access? If you could pass a couple of laws or changes to make this country more small d democratic, Mm. and I want to emphasize that, Mm -hmm. small d democratic. If we just were going off of the principle that we would like people to vote and be participating in our political system, what would you do? You know, I would, one, I would have automatic voter registration. I I think what Oregon began to implement and then the other states have picked up, like California and Massachusetts um, and Illinois, I think that is a, a great step forward. When you make the act of registering just simple, that the person has to then take the action to say, no, I don't want to be a voter. That's wow. And it has an incredible impact in terms of broadening with the small d. Uh, So Oregon, you know, you look up and they were already a state that had one of the highest voter turnout rates in the nation. With automatic voter registration, boom, not only did their turnout rate increase, but the diversity of their voters increased as well. I mean, I think that that's a key element, one of the things that I think should should be done. I think thinking through how do we make voting easier, such as Tuesday, November, <laughs> that Tuesday, November, election day, that that is a holiday, or you get half of the day off so that you can actually go vote. Because what we're doing with a lot of people is that we're saying, uh, particularly working class folk who have to punch a clock, is that we're saying, okay, you can either get some pay deducted for going to work late, or you cannot choose the people who will be setting the policies that will affect your life. There's no reason why we should do that. And so we either fully expand early voting or we turn that the election days into into a time where people can actually go vote. I think that those are two of the major pieces. And then, of course, getting rid of the ridiculousness. So the lie of voter fraud, for instance, has been the justification for all of these voter IDs, except there isn't rampant voter fraud in terms of voter impersonation, where somebody is pretending to be somebody else, going in and voting and then voting someplace else and voting again to tip an election. It's not rampant. And the studies are very clear on that. The evidence is clear 
on that. And so getting rid of these obstacles to the ballot, the next thing that I would do was that I would implement again, have Congress strengthen the Voting Rights Act. The Supreme Court gutted it. Congress needs to come back and put it in place. And it needs to be put in place until the states fully understand. We are American citizens. We have a right to choose our representatives. It's not a privilege. It's not an obstacle course. It's a right. What do you think about something they have in other countries, which is compulsory voting? If you are eligible to vote and you don't go to vote, you pay a small fine or... There are, there are different ways in which it's done, but I always think it's an interesting thing to to think about, to just recognize how much more broadly you can think about it than we ever do. How much you can say, you know, we really want people to vote and we're going to make it such that to not vote is not just a choice, but a small penalty. You know, I, I think it's Australia that has compulsory voting. I think that's Australia. Um, and I think about it here. <laughs> I'm not keen on it. Keen. Wow, was that the 1950s word, isn't it? Um, yeah, but it's a, it's a neato plan. <laughs> and that's because um, for multiple reasons. So the kinds of fines that you would wage, those would be disproportionate on the folks who are poor. And it's, I don't know how to talk about this. The One of the things, you know, you talked about uh, the kind of American character. The part of the American character is that when we're forced to do something, unless it's, you know, we can't even all of us pay our taxes on April 15th, and that's supposed to be forced. <laughs> so there's a, a maverick spirit here. And I think that what we're seeing with the implementation of the Voting Rights Act, where registration, for instance, in Mississippi went from the single digits up to almost 60 percent of African-Americans. Wow. What we're seeing with automatic voter registration. Wow. And that we make it a habit. So what what California did was to pre-register high school students who are 16 and 17 so that when they turned 18, they could automatically be registered to vote. And so it is to get into that kind of habit of voting. I think doing it that way, not compulsory, but doing it in the way of opening it up that makes it, you know, that being civically engaged is a value value that we have. I think that that would work. I think compulsory would just drive us the other way. (laughs) Let me ask you about the values question that I feel is upstream of these policy ideas. One would think, perhaps, that there would be very little that is less controversial than we want more people to vote and want to make it easier for them to vote. Mm -hmm. But those are controversial statements, actually. And they're controversial statements because rather than seeing voting as a civic ideal and just part of being an American, we've come to understand efforts to expand voting as power grabs of a kind, which says something very Mm -hmm. damning, I think, about at least one of our political parties, which where I think that view has been located. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, um, it does seem to me that what is the core question here is can you instantiate that as a nonpartisan ideal? Because if you can't, If the idea that you should try harder to vote is the Republican view, you should have to clear more bars to vote and voting should be easier is a Democratic view in a country where most states are Republican just because of the way the rural-urban divide works out, that's not going to lead anywhere good in the long run. Somehow that 
that idea needs to be it needs to lose some of its partisan charge. It needs to become mm-hmm. something people embrace. And, and not that I think you have the answer for how to get it embraced, but I'm curious if you have any reflections on that. How do you take something that should just be part of our national creed and at times certainly is in the way we talk about it and disattach it from its short-term political valence? And I think part of that is to remove it from its political valence and put it in that arc that people understand of what does it mean to be American. It's how you said early on in our conversation, we've come to understand that the poll tax is wrong. We've come to understand that the literacy test is wrong. We've come to understand that the grandfather clause, wrong. It's that same kind of way that those kinds of devices that depress and suppress the electoral civic engagement of American citizens is wrong. And I mean, I, to me, that is the way to frame that. The, the, the Republican framing, of course, you know, came from Paul Weyrich. I know nothing that came from him, but he, he really gave clear voice to that when he said, I don't want everybody to vote. You know, what you, you, know, you heard the quote where he said, you know, some of you are goo-goos, where you're, you know, that's good government. Um, and you're saying you want everybody to vote. Well, I don't want everybody to vote. And frankly, our leverage, our power goes up as the voting populace goes down. And so that has been the Republican playbook in this voter suppression thing. Their power goes up as the voting population goes down. But that is so anti-American. It is so anti-democratic with the small d. It is so anti the value systems we say that we fight for. When we put that little flag lapel, flag lapel, you know, that flag pin on our lapel, I mean, it goes against everything. Just as we came to understand slavery, wrong. Just as we came to understand poll tax, wrong. Just as we came to understand Jim Crow, wrong. We have to come to understand as a society that says these are our values. This is how we define ourselves. This is how we walk in this world. And those things that are against that are wrong. That's how we, we, we begin to move this out of this kind of partisanship that systematically and systemically undermines the vibrancy of our democracy. I think that's probably a good place to, to draw to a close. So then let me ask you a question. Last time I asked you to, to recommend three books to the audience, and, and I'll do it in a different way this time. Given the work you did on this book, what books should people read? What are a couple of books you would recommend to have a more realistic history of American democracy? or the American political system, maybe more to the point. Okay. I think, oh, yeah. Um, Ari Berman's Give Us the Ballot. It's a brilliant book. Kevin Cruz's, he's got several, White Flight and um, One Nation Under God. And I would say uh, Norm Ornstein and Thomas Mann's, um, It's Even Worse Than It Looks. And then finally, where can people follow your work? Oh, I, where can they follow you? Where they can follow me? I'm on Twitter, um, Prof. C. Anderson, you know, at Prof. C. Anderson. And I have a webpage, finally, uh, ProfessorCarolAnderson.org. And so my events and my media pieces are on that website. Carol Anderson, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ezra. 
Thank you to Carol Anderson for being here. Thank you to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, to my engineer, Griffin Tanner. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back not next week, but on Thursday. <laughs>